But why is it the hood and why is it the ghetto? First black woman to go to space. Black people have the right to be mediocre. There is no ethical way to be a billionaire. It would be nice for people to see you investing in things that improve the lives of others. But he was not the president of Kenya. He was the president of America. You're listening to Two Bees in a Pod and I am Bilola. And I am B. Leonga, and this is a podcast about immigrant experiences, sharing our perspectives on various topics, including straddling cultures, fitting in, staying connected, learning and unlearning the good, the bad and the ugly. Our episode today in honor of Black History Month, we're going to be having a conversation about Black excellence. But before we get into that, as usual, our icebreaker is... As an immigrant, what is one eye-opening or revelatory thing you've learned about Black American history? Um, I would say one eye-opening thing that I've learned about Black American history is how much of it is not taught. <laughs> I was listening to an NPR podcast, uh, NPR Planet Money episode a few years back, and they talked about how, like, after the end of the Civil War, there was a lot of like work done, like Black people were filing patents, right? They were doing a lot of like designing things and coming up with things. And if you think about the fact that black people were the ones doing a lot of the labor, so they're figuring out ways to make life easier for themselves. So they were Mm -hmm. designing things and coming up with all these patents. But then like Jim Crow laws started creeping up at the turn of the century, like early 1900s. First, it started with like they would design things, but they'll have to get a, a white person's name on it to be able to even like submit it. And then once Jim Crow hits, um, you can see like the significant drop in the number of patents filed, which is tied to because a lot of like a lot of the black inventors who were, you know, fighting for patents, they couldn't do that because of the racism. And so not only did it affect them, but it also affected the U.S. because it brought a, you know, there was a drastic effect on the creativity and the inventions that were um developed in that time and I don't think like if you consider the the rate at which it was going then and how it stopped in that period before we came back and like the fight for civil rights it never really recovered and so Mm -hmm. just some of those things a lot of the inventions that nobody teaches you about you know the contributions of black people that that has been something fascinating to learn over the time that I've been here which I will also say that a lot of this was learned probably in the last decade when I started raising my daughter and looking for books about, you know, Black figures and listening to kids' podcasts that talk about a lot of things. That's where I've gotten a lot of my learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like every year, I mean, you have the standard people, right, that you always hear about, like uh, George Washington Carver, you know, and then the civil rights people like MLK. But I feel like every year... I learn about somebody new and it's usually it it could be somebody who did something, you know, kind of obscure, but that was very, very important that you just don't know about. And to your point about how the number of patents like died down during Jim Crow, it's crazy how America like has gone out of its way to suppress black people at the expense, to your point, at the expense of the nation, like they'll cut off their nose to spite their face. Oh, yeah. I read something yesterday. Pensions, um, social security. Like it was all fine when black people were sidelined. 
as soon as Black people could start collecting unemployment or social security, or Black people started working jobs that came with pensions during the Reagan era, a lot of those things, like just because Black people had access to those things, they started cutting them off. Like it doesn't matter that white people might be the biggest beneficiaries, but just because Black people, like racism makes absolutely no sense, but Mm -hmm. it is what it is. And it's insane. Like I saw a photo um, the other day of a white man. I think he was like the manager of a pool complex or something pouring acid into the pool because there were black people in there. Yeah. So and during this time, they were literally shutting down pools just because they didn't want black people to swim in them. So you're going to take away a resource, an amenity that impacts the whole neighborhood, the whole community, just because you don't want one group of people to use it. Yeah. And if you look at it in the, in places like the South, public pools never came back after that. Mm-hmm. You don't find public pools in a lot of places. Like, thankfully, in Illinois, which is still a somewhat fairly, I wouldn't say, what's the word, community, social state, you do see like cities owning pools and having where people have access to the pools which makes a big difference because coming from Texas, I don't recall seeing any public pools, but it all comes down to one's segregation. And it was like, you had to integrate then, you know, public public pools became a thing of the past. And now it becomes a joke that black people don't like water or black people don't mm-hmm. swim. Black people were swimming until you took away their access. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a, I mean, there are people who say that a lot of, um, social safety nets and social yeah. programs and benefits that people vote against in the U.S. It is because they don't want, they might not come out and say it, but it's because they don't want Black people and other racial minorities to benefit. So even if it's something that will benefit everybody, including white people, they are still against it because yeah. it benefits racial minorities. And there was, I don't know if they're still going on, but in one of these Nordic countries, is this Sweden, where they were striking against Tesla, like the Tesla workers were on strike. And somebody made a comment on their video of how they're in solidarity, right? Like all the workers, and not just in this case in particular, but when it comes to like workers' rights, like you see those countries, they have a lot of workers' rights because they are in solidarity. Like if they're going on strike, they'll go on strike and they have a lot of those rights. And somebody made the comment that why can workers not do that in the U.S.? And they said, because in those countries, they are majority white. They're racially homogeneous, not even yes. just majority white. It's a racially yeah. homo- homogeneous society. They are not necessarily immigrant friendly. So mm-hmm. when they're fighting, they're fighting for each other. They, mm-hmm. they, there's no prejudice over mm, why well, I don't want this person. So they, they can do that. And it's true. I've seen that before where people always use, you know, Denmark, Norway, Sweden as countries where there's unions and there's all these protection for workers. But the thing that people forget is they are racially homogeneous societies. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, I, I really believe it because you see the way people vote against their own interests in this country and it it makes absolutely no sense, except Obama, other than, you know, like cutting up their nose to spite their face. Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, right there. Uh-huh. People, people don't want Obamacare, but they'll tell you how amazing the Affordable Care Act is. So it's it's crazy for me. 
One, I, I mean, there have been so many eye-opening things, but the one that has really stayed with me, and I talk about it often, is how the government, in terms of like legalized racism, in terms of housing, how housing was restricted. And then not only the government, the banks also had policies in place to discriminate against Black people. And for me, it was really striking because I have worked in banking for so long and I, I worked in mortgage um, for a couple of years. And I've, I really see how real estate and the ownership of real estate is a really fast way to build wealth in America. And that's how a lot of families have built their wealth in America. So to know that the government was restricting Black people from accessing this wealth that other racial groups had access to. It's just mind-blowing when you really understand the impact of that over generations. Like, it's insane. And it happened not only in housing, but in education and so many other fields. Like, how was this shit legal? Like, you talk about housing, especially when you think about the GI Bill after Second World War, one of the wars, and mm -hmm. it allowed a lot of veterans to buy houses. I mean, everybody fought, but only some veterans were able to access those loans. And if you think about somebody buying a house, then the value today, how much wealth has come into that family off of that one purchase and the other family that never got those things. I think reading Michelle Obama's book where she talked about her family, where her parents who were working, raising two kids, essentially lived on the second floor of a family member's house mm -hmm. because they probably they couldn't afford and they, they didn't have access to those loans. And when you think of redlining, I tell people Chicago is very diverse, but it's also a very segregated city. Like there's still, there might not be redlining, but you can see the effect and the history of redlining in the city because it's very clear that everybody stayed in their own place and you knew where your place was. And you stayed there. And a lot of people don't move out of the different sections of the city. It's it's insane. Like during after the Second World War, when they were building all of these new real estate developments, there were literally signs out saying no coloreds or no black people. Like it was it's like, don't even come here to think that you can, you know, try to buy a house or even apply for a loan. Like, are you out of your mind? So when people, you know, say all oh, racism is over and there's no reason why you know black people are just lazy this is why you know there's increased poverty in the black communities like y'all really just think that the impacts of slavery jim crow and all of the institutional racism that some of it still survives say like you you think that shit just disappears overnight like the wealth that all the whites to your point if you compare whites um GI to a black GI who did not have access to those loans, that wealth has passed down through generations today. And that that's a huge difference between the two families. And if you think of like they could buy houses, they got jobs that offered them pensions. You mm -hmm. came back and a lot of people, the Midwest at the time was booming with manufacturing all the car plants. So you got, you didn't even need to go to college. You came back, you got a shift job at the Ford GM plant. And you made a living off of that on single income. You pass down that house to your kids. And today it's like, you know, the next one could go to college. You've done all of those things where 
other people for generations have just been trying to get by from paycheck to paycheck. And even in cases where Black people against all odds were flourishing, look at the Tulsa Race Massacre. Like people have built their flourishing community and you come and you destroy it. So it's like, not only are you denying them access to the same things that white people have, but when they struggle and make their own, you come and destroy it. If you also look at the history of highways, the interstate system in America, Mm -hmm. and you look at the communities that got destroyed in building that, there's also a racismo. If you go Mm -hmm. to Detroit, it's like Detroit was Hitsville, Motown, and straight up highways destroy communities. And not only that, you destroy homes and then you tank the property values. It's it's insidious. And like the more you learn about it, the angrier you get. That's why I don't tolerate, like we've talked about this on the on the show before, but when you know Africans make, you know, ignorant, disparaging comments about black Americans, I just know that you don't know, you have not taken the time to learn history. And I, I really I like I don't tolerate that bullshit. Like I hate it so much because you're just displaying your own ignorance. And I've told you I have there's a particular subset. There's a particular subset <laughs> that's it's just sometimes I start explaining, then I remember, you know, which of the groups I'm dealing with, which sort of shifts my tone a little bit mm. because I try to move from like pointing fingers to just, hey. Consider doing this thing in your neighborhood. Consider going to learn about this thing. Consider so that you learn the history versus you don't know this. It gets a little bit heated, um, but I have to remember a lot of it is coming from, I'm not I'm not going to call it ignorance, a lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so just like we came into this thing, I will point people to where they can go to learn. You just reminded me of something before we move into our main content. When you talk about learning things in your neighborhood, Last year, um, I got invited to a screening for a movie about the community that I live in, which is a historically black, black community in Houston and is known as one of the most ghetto, you know, unfortunately it's getting gentrified, but it's, it's, it's extremely ghetto. And I went, I'll admit, I did not know a lot about this neighborhood when I bought my home. I was just kind of thinking strategically like, okay, it's close to town, you know, where I want to be. I see that's in the process of change. You know, I feel comfortable and I think that, you know, my home value will, you know, go up over time, whatever. I factored in a lot of things, but I did not know a lot about the neighborhood, to be honest. So I went to this screening and it was really eye-opening because I found out that this community at one time in Houston's history was the wealthiest Black community. It was thriving, right? It used to be its own independent city before it got incorporated into the city of Houston, it has experienced a lot of environmental racism as it was being incorporated into the city of Houston. They started putting, um, uh, what do you call this thing where they dig gravel quarry? Yes. Quarries. They were putting, um, recycling plants, um, landfills. The community literally had to protest because like children were dying in accidents. Like there would be bodies of water, you know, around these quarries and, you know, landfills that collect from the rain, like kids drowned in there. They started having health problems, like, and that's how the community literally deteriorated to have the reputation that it, it does today. So there are things like we just see, you see a community and like, oh, that, you know, look at that ghetto 
area the people don't take care of the community this and that but there's a lot of history behind it and kind of intentional destruction because that's what that movie that i watched was like there was screening it's essentially a history of environmental racism that has happened in this community and they've been able to track to show like rates of asthma in children um birth defects maternal mortality infant mortality i've been tracking this over the decades to show how when all of these, you know, landfills, recycling plants, quarries, and all of these things. And then to your point, they built a highway, a couple of highways intersect around the community. So things like that, that again, when I moved in here, I'm, I'm going to be honest, I did not take the time to learn about that. I used to just make jokes that I'm moving to the hood, I'm moving to the ghetto. But why is it the hood and why is it the ghetto? So yeah, it was eye opening. There's there's not too far. Some of there's some of those like wealthy black people who stayed are not too far. During Christmas, they do like a decoration thing where they open their their homes for people to come see the decorations. I'll I'll look it up and send it to you. Oh yes, please. Oh, and then there's um on Juneteenth there is um like a historical. They've just built um like a community complex where they have like old photographs showing how um, black people in Houston used to celebrate Juneteenth. And they used to put on like elaborate outfits. They used to dress up horse carriages with like flowers. Like it's, I think they're trying to get back to that, you know, especially now that Juneteenth is being recognized nationwide. But yeah, it was, it was a huge celebration in Houston and particularly around this community. So yeah. Yeah. It's like during the rodeo, one of my favorite thing is seeing the black cowboys coming into town because I think up until living in Houston, I don't think I really knew. When we watched the old Western movies, there were no black people in those movies. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and so like seeing those cowboys and making you go learn and like they've always been there. They've, yes. always, been, they've always been there, but it's just conveniently erased from history. It's not shown in movies, which... We might not realize, even though it might be fiction, but a lot of pop culture influences our ideas, our perception of things. Exactly. And- yeah. Okay. So as I said, our topic today is Black excellence. And I put as a subtitle on the pedestals of racism, because we're not just going to talk about Black excellence, but we're going to talk about how the concept is, is harmful to Black people. That sounds weird, but we're we're gonna get into it. So, what is black excellence? And to get like a succinct definition, I had to you know do some Google's. But it's essentially a high level of achievement, success, or ability demonstrated by an individual, right? So, when we think of black excellence, you know there are historical people that we think of, there are contemporary people that we think of. Like I wrote down a few examples that. We hear about a lot Um, in science. I talked about George Washington Carver, who was an agriculturalist, a scientist, and he made a lot of developments um, in U.S. agriculture. You hear about him mostly related to peanuts, but he did a lot more. (laughs) I don't know why he's famous for that, but um, he did a lot more. And then Mae Jemison was the first... But black black woman to go to school. We're obsessed to her. Sorry. Um yeah. <laughs> this is one of this is one of those where I learned about her because um there was a book of her May Among the Stars. 
and mm. it used to be like one of our favorite books to read when my daughter was younger. And so, yeah, she was the flag- first Black woman to go to space. Fun fact, one of my nieces was friends with her niece and like met her and they were friends and they would hang out. What? <laughs> that is so cool. Supposedly she liked hanging out with her because she wasn't like fangirling or it just, you know, and she would take mm-hmm. her niece and yeah, I do do things together. So I'm super, super enthralled with Mae Jemison. I think for a while we used her as affirmations because I think in her in her book, she talks about like somebody made a comment to her about like what she could do. And so her mom would like reinforce and like affirm her. And so for mm-hmm. a while, you know, we always use those affirmations. I cannot remember them, but we use those affirmations a lot. I love it. And then I recently learned about Patricia Bath, who was an, an ophthalmologist who made, um, I don't know if she invented that technology, but she was instrumental in laser um, eye surgery for cataracts. Yeah. I cannot, um, I know that I, I listened to a podcast episode on her somewhere. I have to mm-hmm. look it up and find a link and share. But to your point, these are some of the, the people that I, I think I, I just heard about her like in the last few months, like I never knew. And that's a huge deal. Like laser eye surgery for cataracts, like it's it's a life-changing like invention. And then we have, you know, when we think of Black excellence in art, like we could be naming people for the rest of this episode and and run out of time. Like uh, visual arts, Basquiat, Kehinde Wiley, who is Nigerian, but he was born born and raised in America. Yeah. So I included him because I didn't want I wanted to include only black Americans on this list. Sydney Poitier and Harry Belafonte. Oh yes. Yeah. I, I could like I was just like if I start <laughs> writing out all the names, like we'll run out. So I put uh Toni Morrison, um, yeah. you know, because she's a writer. And one thing that People quote or talk about her a lot because she kind of had a later, she published Marsh, her first uh, novel, like, yeah, later in life. So people like to quote her to kind of inspire others. But she was doing stuff before that, you know, it's just that her famous work, she published it, I think, after she was 40. And then, you know, in musical arts, we have, I put Prince because I didn't want to name any. <laughs> contemporary people because I'm beefy I'm beefy with some of my faves but again in arts especially you know in music like there's no shortage right of people we can talk about for black excellence I really want to talk about the arts and black excellence because you know back in the day I recently watched the greatest night in pop which is the night they recorded the we are the world um Mm. song and video and that was especially touching for me because I remember having my my parents had the VHS tape back then and we watch it. And I just it was something sentimental growing up. And so we watched it recently again and just going through and seeing how that was done. And it made you think about the, the artists of back then, which is something that I've seen on Twitter, because today it's like artists want to come, but it's usually they're, they're not they want to be leaders. But I'm just like, you didn't go. Not that you went to school, you know everything, you know, since you got your degree, but <laughs> but this, I did my research with two YouTube videos, Generation, I Want to Be a Thought Leader. Back in the day, you had people like Sidney Poitier, um, Harry Belafonte, Quincy Jones is still here, 
they made money from the arts and they funded a lot of the causes. Like they knew their role. They were very supporting. You know, they supported all of the things, but they did not make themselves the face of the movement. And so watching We Are The World, like I always remember Quincy Jones being very involved. Like he was the director of that. But the idea came from Harry Belafonte. And I did not know that until watching that video, which is huh. like you see him. You also see Harry Belafonte in the Million Man, Man March in D.C., which was, you know, led by Martin Luther King. But he was supported by his friends in the arts. And they were the ones that would always fund the boycotts, the protests, the marches in a way that the artists of today, they want to be the face. But y'all don't really know the things. Mm, that's a good point. For Sidney Poitier, I think what is very important for him is like, I think he was the first Black man to win an Oscar. And he mm. was very picky about the roles he chose. And he refused to take roles that he felt were demeaning to him. So that is something that, you know, back then, I think the first Black woman to win an Oscar, I think it was for a supporting role, but she was playing a maid. Mm-hmm. Um where he was just very adamant about he was not going to take those kind of roles. The 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 woman you're talking about, was she the Gone with the Wind? Was I, I she in so. Gone with the Wind? Hattie McDaniel? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay, sports, right? If we want to talk about Black excellence in sports. I'm sorry, but any sports that Black people attempt, they dominate every yeah. single one. Even things that they don't have any business, like ice skating, you know, just... It's insane, right? If we talk about like Black American excellent sportsmen, Jesse Owens, Serena Williams, Simone Biles, who, anyway, if you have been on social media recently, you know I'm kissing my teeth. Simone Biles, who they literally had to change the the, the grading system of gymnastics because she was making it so unfair. Like she's that talented and just, and I really like Serena and Simone Bowles because they they excelled in sports that are not typically for black black kids, black people. Mm-hmm. Tennis tennis is not an affordable sport. I don't know much about gymnastics. Tennis is not affordable. So for Serena, like watching the movie, like her dad is not, he's not a, nobody's perfect. He's not a perfect human. But the intention in him, you know, championing his daughters. I mean, they're their mother too. Let's not let's not write her out. Because when I watched when I watched King Richard, I was surprised to know that she was also involved and she was also a student athlete. So she was also an athlete growing up, which was helpful in their training growing up. But I think that a lot of that gets erased from their story. You're the one telling me this now because I'm not gonna lie, I never even considered like who is this woman's mother and what role did she have? Because you only hear about the dad, right? Yeah. And I guess all the videos that I've seen, like that famous video where the interviewer is trying to like denigrate, is it Venus or Serena? I think it was Venus. Yeah. And the dad was like, "Uh uh-uh, like, you're not about to like talk to her like that. So yeah. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. Maybe I need to watch that movie. Um, And then when we talk about technology, the famous women from the movie Hidden Figures, Katherine Johnson, Mary Jackson, Dorothy Vaughn, who were mathematicians, who essentially at that time were human computers, who were instrumental in the first astronaut going into orbit. Um, I didn't watch that movie just because I knew that it was going to annoy me because I had heard that they changed 
they change certain facts about the story to make certain white characters look better than they actually were in real life. So I was like, I'm not going to watch this, but, you know, I will learn about them outside of the movie. So I didn't see the movie. The movie. I can't. The only white person I remember is Kevin Costner. And yeah, it's was, him. He still was not the highlight of the movie. It's just super fascinated by those women doing the, com- the calculations um, and the fact that they called them the computers. And like they were doing all this work that the computer could do, which, I mean, we did math, right? I'm just wondering what kind of calculations. And they're probably not using calculators like i remember seeing logarithm tables growing up and i was just thankful that we never had to use (laughs) (laughs) to use those like when i think of technology and some of the things you know like for designers autocad now you can just do where i worked in the oil and gas industry where we're designing plants and you just put in autocad and you have you know your pipes are just running and people are doing that by hand at a certain point in time (laughs) In the movie, I guess it, there's some scene where Kevin Costner's character, like he makes a big show of like this segregated. Was it the bathroom or was it there was some some oh, scene yeah, where like she so they were it was the, the computers who were mostly black women worked in a different building. Mm-hmm. And Kath, they had brought Catherine Johnson into the main building to do work. But every time she needed to use the bathroom, she had to run across to the other building and it, it took a lot of time and they were pressed for time so it's like what are you doing that is taking you so long and so mm-hmm. he broke the sign it showed that he broke the sign um for her to use the bathroom yeah that never happened and i don't know why like why do filmmakers feel the need like because that's a significant thing and if it didn't happen like why are you trying to make this character into a white savior they had to make it palatable for the general audience because whatever. Yeah, that's like true. I, I said, to me, like I said, it's not a highlight until you said that. That's not my takeaway because my takeaway mm-hmm. is a fascination at like, these numbers you guys are crunching, like, whoa. Mm-hmm. And like watching her just write across and like doing all those calculations. That was super fascinating. So of course, yeah, we watched the movie and we read the book and we might watch it again for Black History Month. Another technologist that I learned about recently is Mark Dean, who uh, worked at IBM and was, you know, instrumental in the development of the first uh, PC. I want to mention another one, Jerry Lawson. They call him the father of the video game cartridge. He was Hmm. um, known for his work in designing the Fairchild Channel F, which led to the development of the commercial video game cartridge. And he founded a company, VideoSoft. I think he had a Google Doodle on him a few years ago. That's how I learned learned about him. But again, nice. when we think video games, nobody really. Right. Okay. And then um, social justice leaders, right? Like there's too many to name. James Baldwin, Bell Hooks, Audrey Lord, MLK, Malcolm X. And then somebody I recently learned about, Polly Murray, who... At the time, she was grappling with uh, gender identity. At the time, we did not have the language um, or the space to identify as trans or non-binary. But, you know, that's one notable thing about her is that she, you know, was questioning binary, you know, gender identity. And she was instrumental in a lot of the laws that came 
to be for as far as women's rights and how work has been used for a lot of, again, like women's rights and racial equity laws. And we were talking about the Episcopal Church in our episode on religion. She was the first Black American woman to be ordained. Yeah. She, uh, she was the first African-American woman to be ordained as an Episcopal priest. Bayard Rustin. Oh, um, yeah, I found out about recently, who was very, he was very involved in the civil rights movement during MLK's time, like organizing. But because he was gay, he was, he took a back seat um, and, you know, did the work in the back, but never came to the front. And there's a movie about him currently on um, Netflix. His character is played by... Coleman Coleman Domingo, who also happens to be a beautiful black gay man. So Mm -hmm. um, I haven't watched it yet because I struggle with privacy, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's definitely on my list of movies to watch whenever I get a moment. Yeah, I love Coleman Domingo. He's another like great actor. I love him. I absolutely. And man, his outfits, like he's been killing the fashions lately. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Go so if for nothing else, Coleman Domingo. <laughs> okay, so when we talk about black excellence, right, and black exceptionalism, there is—I don't want to call it like a dark side, but there is this. It's kind of an unreachable peak, right? Because in a way, black people are held to a different standard. You have heard the is it the phrase or and i've heard people quoting it from scandal but i don't know if it came from there originally where olivia pope's dad tells her that you have to work twice as hard to get half as far or as far in terms of being a black woman and this is something that you hear about a lot in terms of black people like you constantly like just doing enough is not enough like you have to go above and beyond just to be you know, to be on par with white people who are doing basically the bare minimum. So this idea of, you know, Black exceptionalism and Black excellence, in a way, it's weaponized against Black people because it's something that you will never be good enough in a sense, right? Because we're talking about in a system of racism and white supremacy, as excellent as you are, you'll never be good enough But also you should not have to be exceptional to have your humanity recognized. You you should not be exceptional to be treated fairly, to be treated equitably. Like Black people have the right to be mediocre, just as mediocre as every other, you know, racial group, but particularly white people. I, I always say that I want my daughter to grow up with the confidence of a mediocre white man named Brian. See? Because we all know a Brian. We've all met a Brian. And we're all wondering how Brian got there. Because Brian is not hes not the sharpest tool in the shed. He's just okay. But somehow, every year, Brian gets a promotion. You know, we're covering for Brian every now and again on different tasks. Yet, Brian seems to be the only one who is moving and shaking. And, you know, Brian, and the thing about Brian is that when he walks into the room, you cannot tell him that he's not the shit. Like, he knows it. <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing with Black excellence that is really, that I struggle with is also like when you put it in terms of like, in every industry, we can pick this one or two people who have succeeded in a field of like thousands. And then 
there's this thing where even if you don't put pressure on yourself, because sometimes you put, you feel like you're representing for all the black people that are going to come before, after, and during your role, or mm-hmm. society is looking at you like you're representing us. So you cannot, you can't mess up. You can't make a mistake. You can't do this because you're in this year. You're doing it for all of us. And it's, it's not okay. Mm-hmm. And in the way that other cultures, particularly the current majority culture in America, they are allowed to, you know, they're allowed to be the Jeff Bezos, just like they're allowed to be in the trailer park. There's nothing wrong with that. And Jeff Bezos doesn't speak for the person in the trailer park in Oklahoma and the person in trailer park in Oklahoma is not speaking for Jeff Bezos. That's the thing. White people are allowed to be individuals yeah. in a way that black people and, you know, people of other racial groups are not. To your point, you are suddenly representing everybody. Like, and we... I feel like it's something that has been ingrained in us because you can be somewhere in public and a black person does something embarrassing and you will just see the other black people looking at each other. Because somehow we are automatically we know. We know associated that. with that person. We feel secondhand embarrassment where that doesn't happen to white people. They don't know him. What? Like that one drunk white man at the bar is just him. Mm-hmm. It's not like, oh, all these white men are getting drunk. But that one loud confrontational black person is mm-hmm. like, oh, look at look at the way people behave in public. But I don't know that. I don't know their exactly. life. I don't know where they're from. Like, what do I got to do with me? Yeah, like black people are not allowed to be individuals. And then about black excellence, right? You made a point that there are a few people, the people that we have named on this list, uh, they are excellent. They are exceptional. That doesn't mean that they did not overcome systemic oppression to get to where they are. And one insidious thing that white people do and, you know, black people also do it, the ones who are struggling with internalized racism, they will turn around and say, look at all of these exceptional black people. If they could do it, you don't have an excuse. And that is one insidious way that black excellence is weaponized. So they try to use it to dismiss the fact that there is very much systemic oppression because these people made it doesn't mean that they did not face those, you know, barriers and they did not overcome them. It doesn't mean that every black person can do that. You said internalized racism, and I really wanted to shout Emmanuel Acho. Oh, that man. I'm still mad at Yvonne Orji for bringing him into our collective because without her, I don't think like... I wasn't on sports, any part of the internet where we would have intersected. I mm-hmm. feel like she, she, he was, she was the crossover for him into the mainstream. And I wish she had left him where she found him because and I think that as a sidebar, I think people like him are the reasons why for every one step we make forward in these so-called diaspora wars, we are going to take 10 steps back because of people like him. Because when he, when people like him make themselves the face of like, Black excellence or the Black experience. When, sir, you're from an immigrant home. We all know the immigrant home. We all know that there's rice at, at home home. That's where mm-hmm. you're from. Be mindful of that and stop taking space for things that you don't know anything about. It's exactly. not your lived, It's not your lived experience. You came from an immigrant home. And like most immigrants, your parents have done what they, they did to get here. They want to make sure you have the best. You settle in the suburbs. You don't know anything about what the person in the inner city has experienced. You only know that suburban life with, you know, the people that you were there 
in different demographic and probably tax brackets. Mm -hmm. And yet somehow you want conversations with a black man. Are you really black or which black? And, and, and it's not even like he's having conversations that are really challenging white people. No, he's the kind no, of person he's that... he's cuddling them. Yes. I'm like, really? Not only are you going to step into a space that is not yours to step into, but then you are going to go in there and to your point, instead of moving the conversation forward, you are moving us backward. But that's a great segue, right? Because we're talking about African immigrants and how we we very much embody, we strive for Black excellence. Maybe not for the same reasons that Black Americans do, but we certainly come here and definitely strive for that exceptionalism, right? In our, uh, I've lost track of our episodes, but there was one where we talked about some of the factors that influence the kinds of careers that Black immigrants, and this goes for other immigrants of color, particularly, you know, like Asian immigrants, the types of courses of study that you choose and the careers that you pursue because, A, we talked about Black tax. You want to um, have a career that's going to earn an income where you can support people back home. And then there's also cultural pressure to have this kind of prestigious career a la doctors, lawyers, engineers, right? Um, so those finance. are some of the... Really? Finance is prestigious? Mm-hmm. Accounting now. <laughs> oh, accounting, accounting. Yeah, I was thinking more of like the finance rules. <laughs> like finance, investment, banking. Yeah. Know. They yeah. might not be able to explain to their friends, but it's like he works in that big bank in New York. <laughs> So, yeah, African immigrants, we definitely do have our own Black excellence that we strive for. It's just motivated, maybe slightly different. But I think that we still we still buy into this, that we have to come here and prove ourselves to white people, to the majority culture, right? I think apart from the Black tax and our own cultural pressures to excel, I think we definitely buy into that. We come here and try to prove that we are the good kind of black people. Blacks, yes, we are not like mm-hmm. the other blacks. We are we're mm-hmm. not like those ones. We are hardworking. We would take, we would do the you know two times the work for half the salary. And not even asking. I'm just grateful to be here. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Like you're not doing anybody any favors. You're messing it up for everybody. Mm-hmm. And we still I hear a lot of. Uh, African immigrants buying into that conversation of, oh, Black Americans, they have all of these opportunities and they have not taken advantage of them. Meanwhile, you as the immigrant, you don't understand, number one, the history of Black American people in this country. You don't understand the systemic oppression and you're just coming here to your point. You don't have the lived experience, neither does your family. And you're coming here to, you know, because you made it and now you're an engineer and you think you can speak on other people's experience. So we we definitely play into that. Tied to Black excellence, this concept of respectability politics. So respectability politics refers to the idea that a marginalized group should behave or present themselves in a way that is acceptable or more similar to the majority group in order to gain respect or have their issues validated. Is this idea of you as a Black person, you're speaking about uh, racial injustice and all of this, but 
why are you shouting? Or come to the table and, you know, engage respectfully or don't, you know, speak proper English. In, in order for you to have a valid place to speak on certain issues, you have to present yourself in a way that is proper. I don't know if, that's, if yeah, that makes I, sense. I, I, I think it is, but it, respectability politics does nothing to you because if somebody sees you like the N-word, I don't care what you wear, you're still an N-word. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. But I think that is also a more nuanced conversation on, you know, like, say, dress how you want to be addressed or some of those things, right? Mm-hmm. It's like there's a time and place for everything. Now, when I say dress how you want to be to be addressed, I'm not like, there's not only one kind of formal wear. I, I enjoy seeing when African statesmen go to global conferences and wear their traditional dress mm-hmm. because it's like, a suit does not all have to be the only formal, formal dress. Like what makes your suit better than my country clothes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or there was a conversation I saw recently about, you know, speaking AADE or I mm-hmm. just think in terms to me, it's like going to a meeting and our common language is English or French or whatever. If there's no translator and you do know like there's, it's not speak proper, but just speak in a way that everybody can understand because something that I personally done at a meeting is a lot of jobs use acronyms and -hmm. sometimes you have a guest, you have a client. And so I learned from somebody early on that at the start of the meeting, we're explaining all the acronyms before we get started because it's easy to assume that everybody knows that you're throwing out these acronyms and somebody's just completely lost and they cannot make sense of what is being said. And so it's like, it's not that you should speak proper English, but at least if you're in a circle, speak to the level where everybody is going to understand. So people are not going back and you're like, what did you say? What does that mean in that? I don't think that it's like not changing your accents, right? Mm-hmm. I Like we talked about code switching and I'm trying more and more to figure out what my authentic accent is where, <laughs> I'm, where I'm not code switching. Because I remember reading where somebody said his son, he came to America as a teen, as a teenager, which... Usually teenagers, kids, elementary to high school, I, I always say they're the ones who drop their accent in a heartbeat. They have to assimilate. They want to belong. They don't mm-hmm. want to stand up. So that accent is going to be gone in like two business days. Okay, three months. And so he, you know, he was being called switching. And his son asked him one day, like, why are you talking like that? Like, when you see this person, you talk like that. And when you're talking to this other person, so why are you doing that? And so he said he was making a more conscious effort to talk the same to everybody mm. without have without and I think about that sometimes like I want to, to talk the same across mm-hmm. the board um so yeah that's my nuance into some of it's not respectability per se but it's just I think that a lot of times especially on the internet TikTok and Twitter everybody just shouts and shouts and like oh bring your full self to work like we joke at home Tosin says he cannot bring his full self to work because if he was going to play music in the meeting, could people handle him playing Tupac? <laughs> but on the topic of speaking, right? I think what I don't like is when, for example, if I'm in a meeting and I say ask instead of ask, everybody in that meeting knows the word that I said and they understood, but it's looked down upon because it, you're speaking in an accent that's associated with you know, a black American people, do you or do you not understand what I said or what the person said? I don't personally say it, but people get mocked for saying that all the time and it annoys me. 
I still want to, there's a word. I don't remember the word that I heard somebody say in a meeting one day and like it jolted me back into reality. It was not conversate, but it was a word that Americans use in a way that I don't think is correct. Mm. And it's like, you guys say this, your things here and again, nobody has corrected you. Like, stop it. I think when I just came to college and I would say things, some people want to correct me. I'm like, hey, English is not my first language. <laughs> <laughs> and I said that for so long, just so that people can leave me alone. Because my mom had said she, they went to like, she used to work at like a global um, organization and they'll have this annual global meetings. And her colleague who was Nigerian, who spoke with a, a like, heavily like accented, um, he spoke accented English, right? Like, mm-hmm. And he said something and people laughed and he's like, why are you laughing? He's like, English is not my mother tongue. That's not the first language I learned. So if you hear me speaking, just be grateful that I could actually speak to the level where you can understand because this is not my first language. Some of you have worked in different countries. Have you picked up the other like the, the, the local languages there? And even if it was your first language, that that's the accent. Do you or do you not understand what the person said? The purpose of language is to communicate. Did you understand what's being communicated? But I wanted to talk again about the dress, how you want to be addressed, because it's something that is used in different contexts, right? In terms of Black men, if they get, you know, stopped by the police for no reason and harassed, it's something that you would hear like, oh, oh, but you were wearing, why were you sagging your pants? Why were you wearing this and that? doesn't matter what somebody's wearing. They have a right to move freely and not be stopped and harassed by the police. But again, and this is something that you would hear other Black people saying, like, look at how you're dressing like a thug. You're dressing like a gangster. Then why do you get angry when the police stop you or when they assume that you're a criminal? So that's an example of respectability politics. And a lot of people subscribe, a lot of Black people subscribe to that. There was this video that went viral on TikTok last year where a a black dentist put up a sign in front of her practice saying that patients could not come in wearing bonnets. And there were a couple of other items of clothing that she said were not allowed, but it was the bonnets specifically that caused the, you know, the uproar. And to me, that's another example of respectability policy. Because first of all, it's black women who wear bonnets and you're a dental practice. When people come in, they are laying down. What It's very reasonable for somebody to come in with their bonnet. I don't see why, why, why would you have a dress code for your, for your dental practice? First of all, a lot of people have anxiety around the dentist. They should, you would want your, pa- your patients to be as comfortable as possible. So it was, and then there were people going back and forth. And there was this one pick, Misha, who, you know, made a video basically defending that and I'm like, no, that's a, that's a prime example of respectability policy because that dress code was it was targeting it. black people specifically. So that's an example of internalized to me internalized racism that's demonstrating respectability politics. For a lot of those people, I'm just like, you know what? Cool story. Keep your practice. Let's see who comes there because, like you said, this bonnet thing. People like to shout about bonnets in public, but here's the thing. For me, if I get my hair straightened, like I'm protecting this thing. So if I'm just going to a store, why am I taking the why am I taking my bonnet off where something can happen? Like I'm protecting this girls for as long <laughs> as I can. 
And so if it's not necessary, like if I'm traveling, for instance, I'm going through, I don't like to take my bonnet off when I'm traveling, but I wear like a hat or something, but it's just like, I want the hair protected because I might, you know, sleep or do something. Mm-hmm. But people have all of these preconceived ideas. And I don't think that the lack of bonnet is so, like, again, if somebody was going to be prejudiced, I don't think that the lack of the, the, the lack of bonnets is going to give you one leg up. Exactly. And what was it, Monique, who was, she made the comment about Black women wearing bonnets in public. People talk about, to your point, Black women wearing bonnets on the plane. What? Oh, again, you're going on the plane, you want to be as comfortable as possible. Your head is leaning against the headrest the whole time. Like, why is that inappropriate for you to have on? Your bonnet. And to your point, bonnet or no bonnet, a racist person is still going to look at you the same way. Your appearance, however, you if you like wear, you know, a three-piece suit, a racist is still going to be racist. Black excellence does not, you know, shield you from racism. Serena Williams, Beyonce, Allison, Felix, these are all examples of black excellence. But women who during the, their childbirth, they were ignored by medical professionals. Serena Williams almost died of a blood clot. Like she had to literally advocate for herself. If Serena Williams can experience medical racism, then what, what else? What about the average Black woman? So that's just to show that if you like, you know, whoever you are, we all exist in this white supremacist system. Like your, your Black excellence will only take you so far. But before we move on, that dress, how you want to be addressed, I want to make a point because it's also used by men to justify disrespectful behavior towards women. Dress how you want to be addressed or why you dress like a hoe if you don't want men to treat you like a hoe. And it's the same thing. A misogynistic man is going to be a misogynist regardless of what the woman in front of him is wearing. There is no outfit that, you know, will change that. You either respect women or you don't respect them. That's it. Your your respect cannot be conditional upon what the person is wearing. Same thing with, you know, the cop pulling over the black, like a racist cop is a racist cop. His racism or her racism is not conditional upon what the black person in front of them is wearing. But that's just a way for the, the responsibility to be shifted back to the oppressed or the marginalized group to say like, oh, if you had done this, then this would not have happened. Okay. So I wanted to talk about Black excellence and the intersection of class and race and maybe other things and politics, because we have these people that we look up to, right? And we celebrate them because they are examples of Black excellence. But do they, they they represent black people in that sense that they are black and they have accomplished this thing against certain odds, but they also don't represent the majority of black people in terms of class. So I wanted to talk about black billionaires first, because there's a lot of conversation that's been happening about billionaires in the media and whether it's even ethical to be a billionaire. One of the things with capitalism is like when they talk about people who have you know, X many billions. It's just like, what are you going to do with all that money? What are your children's children going to do with all that money? Like, what is the point of it all, right? But it is a system that we live in and people have gotten their money 
And for whatever reason, they they make the choices that they make. Because I think like when I look at black billionaires, I think it it I think of it as like they don't represent the black person. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. every now and again they want to throw us there, I'm black like you. I'm, you know, my blackness or whatever. I'm just like you, but now nah, you ain't. Maybe you, you once were, but at a certain point, you get to a point you lose touch and that's fair. It's like, it's okay if you lose touch, right? I'll use you and I, like, for instance, like I was telling my friend about some of like college struggles that we went through. And now it's like, it's, it, it feels like a lifetime ago where, where we've, we've moved a little away from that, where if you're not mindful, you might like eh, that thing. And so you have black billionaires who, Yes, you're you're a black person, but you have all this money. And so your social circle and the things that you are around might remove you from the realities of the average person. And but I I don't want to villainize you because that's your experience. My only issue is when you come to speak on black issues and then it shows that hey, you're really out of touch. Like you mm-hmm. have no idea. Because I'll use an example of like Jay-Z talking at the Grammys last week about his wife not winning album of the year, even though she's gotten all these Grammys. I struggle. He's one of those artists that I struggle with. Like you have the money, just donate. Donate to the causes. I like, don't not shut up and dribble per se. <laughs> Remember when LeBron was, was um, mm-hmm. advocating for something they said he should shut up and dribble. Not shut up and dribble, but because I remember when Jay-Z, when Colin Kaepernick was protesting and he was kneeling, and when Jay-Z made his deal with the NFL, he said, we are past kneeling. But even today in 2024, we are not past kneeling. There's The NFL still has those issues. There are people who are mad at the NFL because they have, what is it? The Rooney rule, which says they have to have a, at least a certain percentage of the coach coaches be black. Or that like for every interviews, they have to interview a certain amount of black candidates. And a lot of people, when they hear that, oh, there's a quota for interviews, they automatically assume that, oh, this person is not qualified. You're only interviewing him because you're Black. No, your prejudice and the prejudice that exist is not even giving them the chance at an interview. They're not saying that you're just going to hire them. Like, just because they were interviewed because of this, doesn't mean they're not capable of doing the job. You're just giving them the opportunity to even show that, hey, take a chance on me like you're taking a chance on the other person. Mm -hmm. And so all of these things still exist in NFL, but when it suited him and he wanted to do, he came and he he made this and it's like, you're talking on our behalf. You're not talking on behalf of the average person because it's clear that you don't relate to Mm -hmm. us. And that's fine. You have your money. You know, if I want to hit now, so that I'm, I'm hitting because I don't have the same amount of money, but have your money, but don't, be aware that you're not speaking for the average person. But I think that's one of the critiques that people have of Black billionaires and ultra-wealthy Black people, right? Is that when it's time to call out, um, you know, racism, which they still do experience, then they want to come and be part come back, of yeah. us, mm-hmm. right? But yeah. when it suits them, then they are very individualistic, mm-hmm. Right. And an example of somebody who has done that is Kanye West. When Kanye West, no, it's true. When, it's true. No, no, I'm agreeing with you 100%. Yeah. When it's time to, you know, say that he's being treated unfairly, he's being discriminated against. Oh, then oh, he knows that he knows that yeah. he's part of the black people. When it's time to put on slavery a MAGA was, hat. Slavery was a choice. Slavery was a choice. 
and to collaborate with, you know, racist people and do racist fashion shows, then he's very individualistic. But when he experiences the negative impacts of that system, then he wants to be part of the group, right? He wants to come and stand with, with the crowd and point and say, oh, look at what they're doing to us. Um, but you that was a really good point about, you know, them picking and choosing when they want to associate with the Black, you know, community. But just the ethics of even becoming a billionaire, right? Let's pick the supervillain of the world, Jeff Bezos. And he's a really good example that you can kind of look at because of the business, Amazon. And you can point to that and, and it's easy to examine and say, okay, you cannot become a billionaire if you are not treating people unfairly. If you are not underpaying workers, if you're not exploiting workers, if you are not doing severe environmental damage in order to produce these goods, in order to ship these goods in the, you know, with the efficiency that you have come to be known for, you must exploit people, you must exploit natural resources, and there is no ethical way to be a billionaire. It's very easy to look at Jeff Bezos and Amazon and understand why people say that, like it makes sense. But when we look at other people who have become billionaires through entertainment, then for me, that question becomes a little bit more because I don't understand, it's out of ignorance, right? I don't really understand kind of the supply chain or what happens, the production of, is is there, are there people being exploited in that sense in the industry where these black billionaires are most prevalent, like Oprah, Beyonce, and her husband, you know, Tyler Perry. Is it is this still the same story that there is no ethical way to become a billionaire? Like you cannot become a billionaire in that industry without the exploitation of people and natural resources. Of course. Really? Tyler, Tyler Perry, for instance, like Tyler Perry's Tyler Perry has been good to for black people, like him getting money, building the studio, a lot of black shows or movies are filmed there but he's also notorious for not paying um not paying fairly he doesn't like to hire sag which sag is the screen actors guild so the union for a lot of people in the movie industry he doesn't like to hire anybody affiliated with sag not hairdressers i mean they don't hire hair makeup on those shows not writers he's the only writer there's no writer's room um which is how he he turns out things so fast. So if he was paying, why are you laughing? Because, oh my God, because the shade that you're throwing, but it's so funny because it makes sense when you watch his movies that hey, there's no hair or makeup, there's no hair. Clearly. I, actually, I was not throwing, this was me just stating fact. I wasn't even being shady. There's no hair and makeup. He would not, he doesn't, because, you know, like some of makeup artists have their SAG, they have union cards. He mm. would, he doesn't even hire, but he would definitely hire in the, anybody in the union. Mm. So he's notoriously anti-union, where unions are definitely one of the ways that built up the American middle class. Mm -hmm. And so I just feel like for starters, there's no ethics. Capitalism and ethics don't go together. Mm -hmm. Because in like that, like for Tyler Perry, that is a, the case that I would make, like just the way that he makes his movies and the actors he hires, like he doesn't aspire for ex to, to excellence. Like he's not trying to be Christopher Nolan, Martin Scorsese. Nah, he's just churn, churn, churn. And it's a model that has worked for him and made him money. Okay, mm -hmm. but 
there is no ethics in that. To the other, like to um, Jay Z and his partner, theirs becomes a little bit more nuanced because I'm not going to look at the ensemble of artists because not every artist is at their level. Mm-hmm. But I think that when we look at Ticketmaster and the price gouging, I think that they have the ability to say, hey, I want to handle this thing. And they could figure out ways to make their shows more accessible. I think mm-hmm. they could. And it's a choice not to. I don't know what their investments are, but here every now and again, when they do certain things and they're selling overpriced items, I think that that's just like, you have so much. Why are you still trying to make more? I'm not saying give it for free, but at mm-hmm. least price at market value. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I have, I mean, I've said on this show before, I have several Ivy Park pieces of clothing. And I bet you if I go and look on the label, it's not going to say made in the USA. It's going to be made in a country where the workers are paid, you know, very, very low wages. So yeah, you're, you're right. Um, and then just the fact that in the US specifically, billionaires and even more people below the millionaires are not taxed and they are not taxed the way that they should be. And it blows my mind when normal people like you and I vote, we, we, we support these politicians who are anti-raising the taxes on the rich. Like people vote against increasing taxes on people that you are not even in those people's tax brackets. So it's not like the increased taxes are going to impact you. But you vote against them because I think after the decades, I mean, what, since the 80s, when have people been talking about trickle-down economics? We have all the data and the proof that it doesn't work. Hey, when it comes to taxes, I think that there's an aspirational context. There's an aspirational context to it, right? I think that because I always say that there are certain people that they start off somewhere and they support, you know, social, social welfare, right? But then mm-hmm. you get to a certain point and it's like, oh, they're taxing me too much. Because there's a, I get shocked every time I hear people moving to Florida or Texas, which a lot of people make those moves because like, oh, there's no state income taxes. But I'm also asking, like, what is the trade-off for that? Because as I think we've talked about this before, and I'm going to reiterate that I live in a state that has a lot of taxes and some of them are annoying because like mm-hmm. we have to be back. We have a bag tax, so I take my own bags. I'm against paying seven cents for a bag. If you go to the city of Chicago, there's an additional tax for buying bottled water, which is to deter you from buying bottled mm-hmm. water. And the taxes are higher here. But like I always say that as a parent, I see value in those taxes. I might feel differently if I did not have a child, but I see a lot of value in the taxes because there's so many things that I'm able to get because we are all paying these taxes and so the city can afford to subsidize it for everybody. We were paying $150 for my daughter's swim lessons every month. And I switched her to join a swim team with the city. It was $48 for the session, which is eight weeks. Nice. So for me, take the taxes, I get the benefits. But again, people who might not have kids might not feel that way. And so every now and again, you hear people, they don't, they don't want to raise taxes on millionaires because I don't know, maybe they think that it's going to affect them. And you have people who keep moving to states because they don't want to pay taxes. Let me tell you something. I'll tell you what the trade-off is in Texas. It's property taxes. So just pick pick your poison. You think you're running property from income. Taxes, 
Uh-huh. Uh, there, yes, you, you are running from your income tax in California. Come to Texas, you'll pay property taxes. But to your point about aspirational, I wonder if that's what it is. But that is one level of Delulu that is is insane. Excuse me, wait. So all this dinner with Jay-Z men or people sleeping on air mattress calling women gold diggers, what is that? Is that not the same level of Delulu? Because like... You don't want them to tax again people who are they're not in your tax bracket. Like this is what a lot of Americans fail to understand. You are closer to being homeless than you are to being a billionaire. All you need is to be diagnosed, God one forbid, stroke. with cancer. No. One stroke, one cancer. You're you done. Know. One one really high risk pregnancy with a baby with a NICU stay. I know somebody who had kids that ended up in the NICU and the bill was heading towards the millions. Mm. Like medical bankruptcy is like a real thing in this country. And yeah, I just don't understand that thinking. And even if it's, you know, you're in the tax bracket where you might pay a little bit more, but it's like to your point is for the good of everybody. Yeah, I don't have children. Do I complain about property taxes? Yeah, I do. Especially when I was living in Fort Ben and Fort Ben had some very good schools. And I used to be like, man, I'm paying these taxes for other people's children to go to good schools. But I mean, it is what it is. You know, that's, that is the cost of living in a society. And that's why these billionaires, they need to be taxed to the point where it makes, changes them from billionaire to millionaire. But the thing about it is, America is just in such a weird way where I'll use Seattle, for instance, right? So Seattle, Amazon and Microsoft have a heavy presence in Seattle. And because it's tech and it's one of those industries that pays people really high, it has completely thrown off their housing markets and everything because there's a subsection of the population that, you know, can afford to pay for these things. But then it's also priced out a lot of people, which then led them to have a homeless and unhoused population mm-hmm. problem. And when they suggested, you know, adding another an extra tax to these tax to these corporations, Amazon threatened to leave the city. So now you have the city like they're caught between a rock and hard place because if Amazon leaves the city, like how many, you know, what is the population loss you're looking at? Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, I think Amazon did go ahead and decide. Then they made this whole big thing about they were looking for a second, a place to have like their second or subsidiary headquarters. And now cities are auditioning, like, come, we won't charge you this. We won't charge you that. But all of that, I think they were just blackmailing the city of um, Seattle to stand down. And again, it's a problem that you caused. Mm-hmm. You caused this problem. You are your tech bros. Yeah, I think on that front, the, the states have too too many rights in, in terms of that part of taxation. Because then if, if all the states were taxing them uniformly, then they will not be able to make that threat now. Or even the cities, <laughs> if it was uniform, they wouldn't be able to make that threat. Because where are you going to go that will not tax you? I think America is around the same with Cameron that, that they say if... If they explain America to you and you say you understood, it means they didn't explain it properly. Truly. Because there's a lot of mind-blowing things. I struggle with like the compensation athletes get right from the college level to what the teacher is making. 
because like as a society what are we placing more importance on our mm-hmm. our our entertainment or the people training these like there's certain jobs that just seem really critical for the running of society and teaching will be one of them but everyday teachers are quitting because states are tying their hands on what they can and cannot do and they're not even paid that great they're not But I think we're seeing a shift, right? And we had talked about this in another episode in terms of at least celebrity culture, because one person who has fallen out of favor is Oprah. Oprah used to be, you know, America's sweetheart in a way. And I I think it was happening over time as people are just becoming more disillusioned with all of these billionaires. But last year when the Maui fires happened, Oprah and The Rock made a video where they were, Oprah is a billionaire. I don't think The Rock is, but he's ultra wealthy as well. They were asking people to donate money to give to the impacted families and people just lost it. Like they lost their minds. They're like, you people are mad. Both of you are asking, y'all are millionaires, one of you is a billionaire and you're asking regular people to donate money to assist, you know, people who have been impacted by the fires, Oprah, who has a giant property in Hawaii. So that was like, again, I'm sure it was happening over time, but that was a point where, you know, people were just done with her. I think The Rock, he, you know, apologized and he, you know, tried to explain himself. So I, I don't know exactly how public opinion of him is, but Oprah... And especially with Taraji has been talking about her and how she was treated on The Color Purple. And I think Monique has said stuff about Oprah. I think as we're just becoming more disillusioned with these celebrities. So I think for Oprah, she's off. She's been off air for over 10 years now. Um, She's not in our faces as much anymore. So I think there's room for people to be more critical of her because it's like, we don't see you. And then you pop up to ask for money. Like, ma'am, stop it. You know, mm. where if she had a show, she was doing giveaways. She was giving out things. She was like the fairy godmother mm. always doing. She's been off air. And so every time that, you know, she shows up, then it's like a chance for someone to remind rem- remind the public of like, oh, remember that time? Remember this, mm. this or that, which... It's like, you know, just be rich and have your money. I don't know why you are out here begging people to give money. And you said that I thought of the late Virgil Abloh, I think during like the protests of 2020. I mean, now in hindsight, we know that he was sick, but they said he gave two Virgils, which I think was like, <laughs> it was $150. Yeah. He gave some ridiculous, like small amount of money. And I don't know if he's the one who publicized it or how it came to be public knowledge. I think people were going through and they saw his name. And so they said, you know, that, that'll be two Virgils and we can run in joke. Yeah. Um, my, my, my mother always says that rich people don't get rich by get and true way, which is true. They are always, true. if you see somebody looking for shortcuts, looking for free stuff, just always looking how to get by. They're the kind of rich people are the kind of people where, it's like, oh, there's a 4% processing fee. They're going to go to ATM and bring you cash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, not, 
know what's going to give you. Like they they are penny pinches and they will cry about money more than everybody. They did not get there because they were generous. Um, That's true. Yeah. Like last night watching the Super Bowl and I saw the commercial that Beyonce did with Verizon. And I was like, why is Beyonce doing a commercial? Like, ma'am, you don't need money. 30 million. But 30, like you're already a billionaire. More is more. So that's, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's why I'll never be rich because (laughs) I don't have the same mindset. I think wealth from capitalism is there's there's no ethics. But I want to talk about last weekend there was a, a chopper crash in California, and it was a Nigerian banker and his wife and son, and I think I guess the pilot and maybe somebody else. Yes, his friend, some other friend or business partner, were on this chopper going to Vegas, and they passed away. I did not know much about him before that. But it said like he bought him and his friend bought a bank and it was like one of the worst performing banks at the time. And he grew it to be like one of like the top five banks in the country. Mm-hmm. And he seemed to be somebody who I want to say like he was making money, but he had just retired to focus on like his foundation. And one of the things he was from the river states in Nigeria, which is like one of the oil rich places in Nigeria, but they don't always seem to get the benefits of the oil. And he was building a university and he had talked to people like, I'm building this for your children. Like, I want your children to be able to attend this school. And which I think that that's what most people are looking looking mm. to billionaires to do. He wanted to do things, but he recognized that he needed money to do the things that he wants to do. And so it's like you go and you make money and you do your investments. But it's like, it would be nice for people to see you investing in things that improve the lives of others. Yeah. where you're you're building this university where he talked like it was going to be he wanted it to be like a top you know a high-ranked university and it was going to be focused on teaching real life skills like practical skills um and things that were fit for use in the real world and so it's to me i think that that's what's really sad is he seemed like he was at the prime and knowing his history in the banking sector Everybody was waiting to see what he was going to accomplish with education and his investment in the arts. Like Kane De Wiley did a portrait of him and his family, of him and his wife really? that they he unveiled like in October. Aww. Like he was a big supporter of African arts and he invested heavily in that. And so to have his life cut short when he feels like he was one of the more, you know, better ones looking at his life as what he was contributing to society. Versus a guy who is just there destroying every African country that he goes to. Rest in peace. Yeah, rest in peace. So I also wanted to talk about politics and Black excellence in politics. And I wrote Black imperialists and I had three names on the list. I'm sure there are many more of them. But I I, I want to talk about these people because, again, it's like they have achieved certain a certain level that Black people you know, have not, right, for the reasons of systemic oppression, like Barack Obama, obviously, was the first Black president in America. So that's somebody that, regard. I feel like as a Black person, regardless of your politics, you have to acknowledge what he achieved, right? That comes first. And I think that is why a lot of Black people are hesitant and just refuse to level any critique 
against him and his policies because it's like, how can you like look at what he accomplished and did for Black America, right? So he's kind of up on this pedestal where for me, he was for a while, but I'm just so disillusioned. Like there are many people that have fallen down from their pedestals for me recently. So Barack Obama is one, and I think he's a glaring example, but two other people that I don't know if they were icons for Black America, just because they were affiliated with the Bush administration is Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, who they were both instrumental in enabling George Bush in his um, Iraq war, which of course we know was based on blatant lies and has caused instability and all kinds of issues that will last for decades and then maybe even centuries to come in the Middle East. So yeah, those two, I don't know, but they were certainly very accomplished Black Americans. So again, you cannot take that away from them, but you can definitely criticize their politics. So when it comes to American politics, and especially like Black people in politics, something that I always tell people is it'll be foolhardy considering what America, who America is. One, the American first. Like we can look at their foreign policy and as much as we disagree, in their heads, they're championing America first and everybody to hell with you. Mm. And so I like Condoleezza Rice, you know, her affiliation with the Bush administration, nonetheless, and her endorsing Rex Tillerson for working with the former guy, for people who have interacted with her and gotten to meet her and just like her accomplishments, she comes across as a very, like, she's very smart. We cannot take that away right. from her. Now her beliefs and her passions, I can disagree with. And especially when it comes to Iraq war, knowing that it was a personal beef between Bush Sr. and Saddam that Jr. came to finish. Yes, I'm going to be mad at her. The same way I'll be upset with Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney. Like all of you. Oh yeah, Dick Cheney was another mastermind in that nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> but as I said, Dick Cheney shot a man and the man apologized to Dick Cheney. But Dick Cheney shot him. I apologize um, now, and I do not finish the job. <laughs> they said it was a hunting accident. That man is a menace to society. Right. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> when when it comes to American like politicians, and especially those performing at a very high <laughs> level, I because when people say, "But what did Barack Obama do for Black people, Africans?" I'm like, "Are you okay? He's an American president. He's not an African president. His father was Black. Yes, good." But he was not the president of Kenya. He Mm -hmm. was the president of America. And so everything that he was going to do was in the interest of America. And given, like maybe his second term, which I think that he did push for a little bit more visible things that were like, we're championing Black people for this thing. But given just him winning and the Tea Party and all the madness that came up from him winning, if he had come in like, yeah, we're going to do this and this and that, he wouldn't, they might have, I mean, now they impeach people just for breeding this current government that we have. But back then there was uproar about he wore town suits. He did this. If there had been the slightest hint of, oh, I'm advancing X, Y, Z, then it would have been an issue. So mm-hmm. I think that it's, it's like, could he have done more always, but also look at the grand scheme. He went in there with a majority and in two years lost everything because Tea Party, a.k.a. Maga Jr., 
was just like we you y'all got a negro in the house like mm-hmm. it's called the it's called the white house for a reason <laughs> i mean in terms of his domestic policy i don't know that was he that radically different than other democratic presidents in terms of you know trying to do trying to better the the situation for for black americans and to your point i don't think he could come out right and say that he was doing things, you know, specifically. He had to be very careful in how he approached that. I'll be lying if I say I'm very aware of his politics. I think Affordable Care Act was a big one that he pushed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it benefited all of us because I like to remind people, pregnancy used to be a pre-existing condition. So, like, Affordable Care Act definitely was the big thing. Medicare, Medicaid expansion, I think is something that he worked on also which are Mm -hmm. things that would have benefited across the board. Some of the things that he championed and some of the bills that Mm -hmm. he passed, like for, you know, like don't ask, don't tell um, defense of marriage acts and some of those other things where even though like in the 90s, those are things that people did not touch. And so you could say that, hey, oh, also DACA. Mm -hmm. I learned that that actually... Dick Durbin, who's a senator from Illinois, was like the original, the person who came up with the idea for DACA. For those who are not aware, DACA is it's for people whose parents brought them to the U.S. illegally as children. And they ended up in limbo where some people found out when they were going to college that they didn't have a social security number. They had no, no sort of identification and they're just sitting in limbo. And you could like punishing them is like they didn't really do it. Brought here, they had no idea. And mm-hmm. so during um, the Obama administration, they passed this law that was, it did not, it, I think it granted a path to citizenship no. or if nothing else, it just kept them in a place where they can work. They can get a mm-hmm. social security number and a work permit and they can go to school. They might not be able to travel or leave the country. And since then, they've just continued renewing, renewing yeah. it, but they haven't figured out the the path forward. Yeah. Those people are called the dreamers, the people who, you know, were brought here as children. And so, yeah, he did. He did do significant things for domestic policy in terms of foreign policy. Barack Obama is just the same warmonger as every other white president who came before him. Like he he dropped more bombs than George Bush before him. Barack Obama was notorious for his use of drones. Drones. Um, he, he, he would literally bomb people's weddings, like civilians. He, he bombed a wedding in Afghanistan. Those are the ones that we know of. Right. So yeah, in, in terms of that, the, the man is again, just as imperialistic as every other president before him. It's America. It's only Africa that we have presidents that don't put our country. That's, that's the only way I can explain because. It's America first. And if we look at the history of this, the reason America exists, it was like running away from the English. Almost everybody who came to this country is running away. We're all refugees from the first people, other than the native, other than the Native Americans, think about it. The people, Mayflower, the Irish, almost everybody who has come to America came as a refugee. You were running. There's a reason you left your homeland to come here. Mm. Call it whatever. I don't know. I, I don't know if I would call the, the first settlers refugees. They, were, they did not that. want what I, they could be political refugees because they did not want to obey the king. 
right? I mean, they they came here to come and find their own people to oppress, essentially. That's true. But the reason the reason they left is, I mean, they came here and said they discovered a land that already existed. <laughs> <laughs> but they, you say they, they came, it was political asylum. <laughs> Lord, they were running from what's that case? Is it King George? What are they running from? Was it King I, George? I think, I think, I think so. <laughs> so. Everybody, most people here is political asylum. I also said that if a lot of our countries were okay, would we be here? I think some of us, most of us, would not be here if our countries uh-uh. were functioning. So, like, we've all come here and it's been America first. Like, we just want to take care of this one land and, you know, preserve it. And somehow it became a world power from refugee to world power. Look at it. That tiny island over there that has given a lot of people independence this. But it's not even it's not even a world power. It's, I mean, because imperialism is like you're going to look for people's trouble. You know what I mean? Like no nobody sent you. Like you all literally made up bullshit to go and start a war in Iraq you know, to destabilize that whole region. Like, and the thing has continued until then. And then I don't even want to start talking about Joe Biden and how he just abruptly left Afghanistan. Like that was some of the most horrific shit that I've seen. Those videos of people trying to hang on the planes as they were leaving. But anyway, my my point was to say that as much as Barack Obama is a symbol of Black excellence in terms of what he has accomplished, He's very much, to your point, America first. Right? He's, he's, he's American. He's, so I can understand people outside of America like saying, because he was hope for everybody. And if yeah. you're outside of America, it's like, hey, I understand if you don't. But if you want to say he he came, he did this. I'm like, he was a okay, Black American, but he was an American president. And mm-hmm. it was always about American interests. And when I say American interests, it could be financial or whatever resources but it's America first, just packaged America, different. America corporations, because to yes. be honest, those, those wars are not benefiting the American people. It's the corporations, the military industrial complex. People work in there though. People work at Raytheon. People work at Lockheed Martin, you know. Yeah, the so, analyst who is sitting at the desk, that's not the person that's reaping the benefits. But what I'm saying is like, there are people who work at these companies who will tell you that, is a necessary evil. No, it's not. I've I've had I've had conversations with people who with someone who works in like, you know, they sell chemicals, right? And I talk about them poisoning us and the if you know the effects of some of these chemicals on our lives. And again, that's the person paying the salary. So it becomes like, but think about the fact that your fruit was harvested in Brazil and you needed it to be fresh when you got to the store. Um and like all these other things. I don't know okay. if they believe that or that's what, but my point just being that it's the industrial complex, but that industrial complex hires a lot of people who they would tell you that it was necessary. As listen, I work for an evil corporation. You'll never find me defending them. So I don't I don't see the excuse that that person's it's not you defending, can but there. You can work there. You don't have to pretend like, you know, what they're doing is necessary or see, not unethical. If you wanted to be really strict, you would work there. You would. <laughs> it's like me telling my friend that I wanted to be, or I said I'm an ethical shopper, and she keeps calling me a liar. And I said, <laughs> I'm, just, <laughs> I'm trying to be more aware of my shopping habits. What are the mm-hmm. fab, you know, like what fabric, what's the, the composition of the fabric? Where is it made? Um, 
Where's its source? And she's just looking at me like, are you going to do that for everything? So she says I should call myself conscious, not ethical. It's semantics, <laughs> but I mean, it's it's better than nothing, right? And you'll start from somewhere and hopefully you, you know, you, you cannot listen in the what. In a system in which we live, you cannot become, to your point, like an ethical consumer overnight. It's going to start small. And then hopefully over time, you know, you will get to a more sustainable place. But as long as we live in this system, you will never be zero impact and 100%. Ethical is impossible. Uh, why no, not? It's impossible. It's why? impossible. Even if you go and homestead on some land out oh, okay, okay, okay. there's yeah there's no you know there, there's no escape please if any listener wants to help me i i really have gardening aspirations so if you're a gardener with a green thumb i mean oh you are one please come on come and help me <laughs> personal shout out okay i'm gonna be honest i put this segment in here because it's something that irritates me and i had a back and forth you know, over a couple of days on TikTok, was it last year or the year before? I think it was the year before. So I want to talk about the hoteps and the obsession with ancient Egypt. So for those who are not familiar, hotep is a comical word that is used to refer to a group of Black people who subscribe to a certain set of, they don't all subscribe to the same ones, but it's they subscribe to a certain set of a historical, you know, tales and conspiracy theories about the origins and the ancient history of Black people. And usually these people are obsessed with ancient Egypt. They point to ancient Egypt to say, like, look at this powerful empire, this technologically advanced empire. This was an empire of Black people. And they really identify strongly with um, you know, ancient Egyptian history, which we'll get into that, you know, in a bit. But Hoteps in general, they, again, they don't all subscribe to the same conspiracy theories, but you'll hear some of them talking about how Black people were the true Israelites or the true Hebrews, which, you know, is anti-Semitic and again, is historical. And a lot of them have very misogynistic and homophobic um, rhetoric as well. But I wanted to talk about this fixation on ancient Egypt because to me, it, it kind of represents, and I don't know, I've heard somebody use the word Afrophobia, but I don't know if that's the correct term where we have examples of powerful Black empires, rulers, right? In ancient history and in more, more recent history. And you are, you are somebody who, you know, you are this kind of Black power proponent you have left all of these West and Central and South African, you know, empires and nations with their history. And you are going and you're fixating on ancient Egypt. Why? When genetically, you are more closely related to the people of West and Central Africa. But you're not interested in learning about that history, that culture, those empires. But you have gone and reached all the way far back to ancient Egypt, and you're identifying with these, you know, these dynasties and these people. And to me, again, it represents the only word that I've heard used to describe it is Afrophobia. I don't know if that's the right word, but where you're downplaying the accomplishments, the intelligence and the history of modern day Black people. 
in favor of this, you know, kind of a historical ancient Egyptian history that you think there were black dynasties in ancient Egypt. They were not all black. See, this is the thing that confuses me because like you just said, we know about, you know, Timbuktu and the, you know, Sundiata and the Malian Empire. So why don't, why don't they ever talk about that? Like those empires or like, I went to a museum here and learned a lot about the Bini Empire, which is where mm-hmm. the British people are still keeping their bronzes. And so like, there's all these other places, but you've decided to make up your own fairy tale. I mean, I guess that's what it is, a fairy tale, right? <laughs> because part of my own issue with Hotepri is a lot of the pseudoscience and just rampant misinformation that exists there currently. Maybe that's not what it meant initially, but as it is right now, it's so much, so much. Like, there, I have, like, you know, certain triggers, like Dr. Anybody, Simos, Dr. Sibi, Isebi, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I mean, maybe there's something good about Burning Sage, but a lot of the people talk about Burning Sage. I don't um, hear people use talking about it medicinally, though, do they? It's for evil spirits. Eh, but what's wrong with that? But yeah, I agree with you. Like, they have a lot of, you know, some of them are flat earthers. A lot of them are anti-vaxxers. Uh, but yeah, this kind of pseudoscience, um, you know, uh, thinking that circulates in that community. But yeah, I just get I, the, the, this thing started what I'm talking about with my TikTok where Jada Pinkett Smith has a show on Netflix. I don't know if it's still going where she, you know, makes kind of fictionalized documentaries about African queens. And she did one about oh, Cleopatra. Zinga. Oh, there's one on Zinga too, but the one that kind of sparked up a controversy was about Cleopatra because the actress who plays her is um is black. I mean she kind of looks racially ambiguous, but she's definitely darker skinned. And this is something within, you know, that has caused controversy outside of this production is that people claim that Cleopatra was black. Now, there is no, contrary to what you hear the whole text saying, nobody has ever tested Cleopatra's DNA. There's no, they don't have her body, but just based on her ancestry, the fact that she was a Ptolemy from, I think they were Macedonian, and these people were known for inbreeding. And they were from Greece. They were very, 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 very pale skin. You know, what we would consider white people today. And that's the lineage that she's from. So just based on all that data, she probably was not a a darker skinned Egyptian woman based on the dynasty that she's a part of and how they are very well known for this. They are very pale alabaster skin and their tendency to, to marry their cousins and their, you know, family members, most historians agree that she would have been a very pale skin, what we would consider a white woman today. So that was a controversy. And I made a video about that saying, you know, first of all, there are so many black queens that you could have picked. Like, why would you pick Cleopatra and then kind of present this a historical image that, you know, is going to spark a controversy and all of this. And the whole came to my comments and they whoo. They were going to town. And that's where I, I was like, listen, if you people are looking for, you know, powerful black rulers, leave Cleopatra 
come to West Central Africa, South Africa. We have so many examples. Like, why do we have to go and fixate on this, you know, kind of murky history where now you're arguing with racist Egypt, uh, you know, racist Egyptians who are making anti-Black comments for no reason. Like, why? Why are we reaching so far back to, to this, you know, kind of obscure history, trying to make the point that this one Egyptian queen was Black? Like, we don't have, there's no lack of examples of powerful Black rulers, African rulers. Leave, leave this Cleopatra, you know. There's documented evidence of a Black dynasty in Egypt. Go on use them as an example. You don't need to be fighting with Egyptians trying to say that this person was Black. We don't lack examples of powerful Black leaders in ancient history. So that shit really irritated me. Oh, guys, sorry. I just realized that my one of my aunts is like my original hotel because her kids, she gave her, she named her kids. She has Horus, Osiris, Nefertiti. Um, <laughs> I mean, I love that for her, though. But she also has Zynga. And I guess that's good. We, we learned a lot of, you know, through her naming, we learned about uh-huh. different things. But every now and again, I think about that. My sister and I joke that she's she's the original Hotep in our lives. But, but yeah, there's so many queens. There's like Queen Amina of Zaria. I mean, like even in Balinyonga, we have our own, you know, woman-led story. So there's this, but I think sometimes it's just, I don't know if I should call it laziness. You're going for what is already available instead of like searching and going to find out and learning new things. So, mm-hmm. and also Cle- Cleopatra is commercial. Yeah. And sensationalized, right? Like, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Ancient Egypt, oh, it's so fascinating. Look at their pyramids. Their pyramids in Sudan. Present-day Sudan. There are pyramids in present-day Sudan. Actually, there are more pyramids in Sudan than there are in Egypt. And they were, you know, that was all one kind of empire at one point. But yeah, it's like, I get it. It's so sensational. And to your point, it's harder to find history about, you know, other African empires. But I just, it, it irritates me. Like, you don't need to reach that far back to you know to be fighting it's a choice now because like in Mali for instance you have Salif Keita who is like a very popular Malian singer and he's said to have descended like he's a singer which Mali is where you had the griots who were like the storytellers who passed down the history and his family is said to have come from Sundiata Keita which was like one of the big kings in Mali and they're also a family of griots so Mm. it's right there the information is there you just start somewhere and keep going but i think that there's a lot of just lack of desire to do that and people go for low-hanging fruit before we move on i just want to say i want to acknowledge that yes like a lot of african and black history has been whitewashed right so i understand why people would buy into the idea that somebody like cleopatra was really black and they're claiming that you know she was white because of white but i get it you know our history has been whitewashed erased corrupted but that notwithstanding, we have examples. You might have to look a little bit harder, you know, and if you are a Black American, you are descended from people from West and Central Africa. Have you taken the time to learn about the history of those peoples before you're reaching back to ancient Egypt? You know, yes, maybe at some point in the distant past, you know, we are descendants from ancient Egyptian dynasties, but learn about our more recent history first before we're reaching back, you know. So, I mean, that, I mean that, I, def- that, 
it definitely makes sense. The slave slave ships mostly went West Africa. I don't even mm-hmm. think like South Africa or even well Angola somewhat, but East Africa dealt with like slavery, but from the Arabic perspective. So it mm-hmm. wasn't really like the transatlantic slave slave trade. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, the whole Egypt angle guy. Listen, if you want like Yoruba, there's a whole if you're even if, if it's spirituality that you're into. Yoruba cosmology is very well documented and it's rich. Like go and, you know, learn about the Orishas and all of these things like that. You are more close to that history than you are to, you know, Horus and Osiris and all those men. Them. But hey, for, for, for shits and giggles, you know, there was a hotep on Twitter who once said we shouldn't say good morning because, you know, morning, even though it's spelled differently, it means like you're summoning a morning so we were instructed to say Grand Rising. And so every time we text in the morning, we usually tell each other Grand Rising Queen. But I've taken it up a notch for Black History Month. So I do, you know, Grand Celestial Rising, my Nubian Queen. <laughs> I actually appreciate you so much for entertaining this because my friend gets so annoyed when I send it to her. Like, why can't you just play along with me? Like, why you got to take it so personal? Like, Kiki. Lord, it's funny. It's when you know who is like so entertaining to me, and I'm sure he puts out very harmful ideas. But Dr. Umar, you guys, I don't want to, I don't want to call that man. You dog. guys, that man is so funny. Like he's hilarious. Like some that there are accounts on social media that are just dedicated to short clips of like hilarious shit that he says. Please look it up one day if you want to laugh, Dr. Umar. Yeah. Something that tickles me is whenever somebody sees an interracial couple and they're like, let's send this to Dr. Umar. (laughs) Dr. Umar actually defends Black women a lot, though. (laughs) He defends Black women a lot. Like sometimes these podcast bros will invite him on their show and they are shocked when he like challenges them. He defends his Black queens. I love it so much. I love it. I just always like that whenever there's like, an interracial couple situation, usually like a, a black male athlete, and they'll just post a meme of him. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, recently Tyrese, Tyrese said that what do you say that he wanted to be Latino? Hey, Latino. Let's Dr. Omar, Dr. Omar got his. He made a reaction video. Listen, I think I think Tyrese just has someone taking care of issues wait what was the day that we're all supposed to get powers as black people do you remember yes it was december 21st 2020 2020 it was 2020 that we're all supposed to get power yes that was the day that black people were supposed to all get our magical powers so if you have not started using your magical powers please go and check your ancestry because me i got mine on that day (laughs) well i guess mine got stuck in traffic you have not you have not realized maybe you'll be doing magical things and you just haven't noticed. Yours are more subtle. I know what I've been I've been doing magical thinking. That's the only magic I've been doing. <laughs> okay, we've been talking for too long. So let's wrap up. Um the way forward. I really think that black people, you know, we need to have more solidarity amongst ourselves. Like we've talked about diaspora wars, you know, on on this podcast before. That's one thing that you know i really want us to start letting go of in 2024 but yeah i would like to see more solidarity with black people around the world 
And they're also more class solidarity. Like, let's leave the billionaires. Let's have solidarity amongst ourselves as Black people and as working class, you know, people. That's that's really what we're going to, how we're going to move the needle forward, in my opinion. Yeah, being a pessimist, why should you get it? Have you seen the amount of aspirational content on TikTok and YouTube? That's what I'm saying. Like, stop that. Like, oh, it's, I'm not saying we shouldn't be aspirational. No, but what I'm saying is I find that every now and again, I look at people, I'm like, is that all that drives you? Like, you know, like some of the measures of success on social media. And I look at it and I feel like I've been told that I'm too idealistic, right? Because mm. I'm like, why can't we all just pay for these social services and but every more often than that, I feel like I'm a minority in that school of thought versus the people who's, you know, aspire to do like the aspirational things, which is usually material things. And it is why, like, that's the whole reason why we have like lifestyle influencers, because what is that? Like, what is a lifestyle influencer? But it's a thing. It's a thing. And the girls and guys are quitting their jobs every day to become lifestyle influencers because somehow there are people on the internet who just enjoy coming me guys while I go, you know, do something. All the ones that are doing unboxing hauls every week, $400 hauls from Sheen and Tim. Yeah. That's, that's what we need to, we we need to de-influence ourselves from that. I don't mind the lifestyle influencers if it's not about consumption, right? Show me how you wake up in the morning and you pet your cat and you do yoga and you work. I, I like seeing those mundane things, but the unboxings, the trying the new makeup products, the things that are influencing you to buy more, 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 more. We need to de-influence ourselves. But to your point, capitalism, like we are all, we're becoming so individualistic. And to your point, we're aspiring to wealth in a way that even our spirituality is centered around getting more. I talked about the manifestation girlies before, like how all of that is just centered around, you know, money and wealth and getting status. And yeah, we all got to live. We all got to survive. We all like nice things, but we have to find a way to, I don't know, the influence. Um, so you just said some our community. I saw a thing today. And I feel like we're not going to discuss it, but I'm just going to throw it out there as a food for thoughts where somebody made a comment about, you know, people are, people are unaliving themselves or like dying by suicide because they, of loneliness and people don't have community anymore. And like you said, like we're becoming more individualistic. We do a lot of our socialization on our phones. Like you go out to eat with people and everybody's still on their phones Mm-hmm. And somebody said a solution to this would be more polyamory, like, you know, having polycule. <laughs> I know it's a man who said that, first of all. No, 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 no. It was a woman, actually. <laughs> no, obviously it was a woman because the word was polyamory, not polygamy. True, 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 true. That's, that that would tell you. And my initial reaction was like, first of all, polyamory is never going to work with heterosexual men. I just... I just don't see it happening. I saw a lot of them come in there, talk about polygamy or, you know, they said, and the person was very intentional when they said polyamory. 
Uh-huh. And they came and they're talking polygamy. But I was just like, that's skipping a lot of steps now. Because a lot of you just like, when can we just do, like I've told you, ideally, I want to live somewhere. I don't mind living somewhere where it's just like my friends and my family. We all live in a community together and do stuff together. But this one, like, how do we go? <laughs> like, why, why do we have to sleep in our community? Now, zero to a hundred. <laughs> because to me, it tied back to our topic from last week where we're talking about platonic and romantic. Like, why can it not just be platonic? Exactly. Make your little like, polyamorous group of platonic friends. Why, why do we have to bring romantic situations into the thing? Oh, that's funny. Like, I, I don't think it's wrong, but I just think that feelings, especially like love and infatuation, it's like heightened feelings that sort of, and they're fleeting. Like they're here, they, they, they come and they go. So like, if you're talking about like community uplifting, this thing is, I feel like romantic is temporary based on what the person is getting from you. Yeah, that's definitely not that's not a solution for building community that at, at all. And there is value in online community, but it has to get, go offline. You know, there's a point where it has to go offline, right? We'll we'll meet online, we'll plan online, but how do we do things physically in person? That's where you know the magic happens. Yeah, because like long distance, I'm in a lot of long distance friendships. And as much as we key, key, key in the group chats, group calls, like being in the same room is different. Like it's uh-huh. the same nonsense, but it's just in person. Um, and it's different. Like the feelings are different. You yeah. got to plan that trip. That's why you need money manifest. <laughs> anyway, if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and review us wherever you're listening can also follow us on instagram at tobespod and a reminder about our february book of the month if you want to read along with us it is chain gang all stars by nana kwame ajibrinya we would love to hear your thoughts on i know that we talked a lot we talked about a lot of different things so please just drop a note on any any of the topics or something that we didn't cover um and let us know your thoughts happy black history month until next time one hand no detail bundle, which means one hand cannot make a knot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One yeah, one hand cannot tie the bundle. I, so it's an encouragement to form community, to collaborate, and yeah, come together. Community over competition. Oh, I like that. Is that an original thought? Or you saw no, no, somewhere? I saw somewhere. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs>